Friends, let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, there are some controversial things in this passage. You might note those or not. We'll talk about a few of them. We'll leave others to rest, but it is a beautiful vision of what Christ is doing through Easter on behalf of the church and what our marching orders are now as the church. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Hear now God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, even if we have some confusion about certain turns in this passage, something comes out very clearly. And that is your victory at Easter bears the gift of teachers for the church that will equip saints so that we could do the work of ministry, so that we will see your glorious bride, the church, built up looking and acting and thinking like you before a watching world. What a majestic thing indeed. Would you do that in our church body and in your church universal, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are basically four steps, four movements in our passage that get us from Easter and what Jesus did at Easter, what he accomplished in that victory between Good Friday and Easter morning, all the way to the eternal vision of the fully formed church. So here are these four movements. Christ gifts teachers... Then teachers equip saints, then the saints do ministry, and then Christ's body is built. Those are the the four movements. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. We're going to close with a little bit of time on the fourth one. And I'm 80% sure that the middle two warrant their own sermon next week. So we're going to watch this progression. We're going to see what Jesus actually puts in place when he wins his victory at Easter. The first movement that comes to us in verses 7 through 11 is that Christ gifts teachers. He gives teachers gifts and he gives us the gift of teachers. Christ gifts teachers. Now that's a very simple idea, but it comes to us with a little bit of confusion. The simplicity of that idea is in verse 7, which tells us very plainly, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, that's a simple thought. Jesus gave us gifts. We get that. We understand that. But then Paul says in verse 8, this is his spin, his messianic interpretation of Psalm 68. 
when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. So we know that Jesus gave gifts, and now we hear it's actually in a chronological order that Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended, and after he ascended, that's when he gave the gift of teachers to the church. But then Paul can't help himself, and he says in verse 9, like some kind of rhetorical question that maybe the Ephesians were in on, but we're not in on today as we look back, when he says to them very simply, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? So we haven't lost the idea that we're still talking about Jesus giving gifts, but after his ascension, but then Paul says clearly, after he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now this is one of those weeks that I've spent more time reading pages of commentary than I would like to admit, and I have nothing to show for it. Like you're better off than I am because you did not read the commentaries that I read. Here are just a few of the interpretations. The answer is always number three, so I lean against the first two. Some commentators and early church fathers, when they, they hear descended, they say very simply, this means Jesus' incarnation. This means that Jesus came to earth. I think we lean away from that interpretation because of the phrase in verse 9, when he specifies the lower parts, the lower regions of the earth, which would be a really odd way to say that Jesus came to earth. It sounds like he's talking about something beyond just the incarnation, so we kind of leave that interpretation, think it's something else. Well, some commentators, and a lot of early church fathers, interpret this to mean something like, Jesus descended below the earth, like the region of the underworld, like Jesus went to hell itself. And by hearing that in Ephesians, that might make you think of that line from the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Now, about every six months, somebody figures out that we don't have that line in our version of the Apostles' Creed, and they, and they bring that up with me, which is great. I'm glad you're paying attention. That line, he descended into hell, is actually a later addition to the Apostles' Creed. That came later, that's why it's not there, and it's based on what I think is an improper interpretation that's found in Peter's letters. And so that's where that interpretation comes from, but that can't be what Paul is talking about here. This is a, the whole nother discussion about where Jesus was from Good Friday when he died on the cross to Easter morning when he rose again from the dead. But Paul is clearly, whatever he's saying, he's not talking about Jesus being in a place of torment for the expiation of sins. Right? He's not, he's not even going there. He's not even talking about that reality or what Jesus was doing on behalf of our sins. He's making a different point. And so, not only for those historic reasons, not only for those reasons in Peter, but for that other reason that that's not the point that Paul is making, I think we lean away from the idea that Jesus was in Gehenna, according to Ephesians chapter 4, hell. So I like option number three. That descended refers to the scope of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is not so much a map of where Jesus went geographically, but a statement about where Jesus' resurrection is felt theologically. 
Now that point came to us many times in this letter already, but it's stated in different ways. Already we have heard that that it's God's plan to unite all things to himself, everything to himself, that came to us in chapter 1, verse 10. Already we've heard that Jesus is seated above every rule and power and authority now and to come, That came to us in chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. Already we've heard that it is now God's plan to display the church before all evil rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, according to chapter 3, verse 10. So Paul makes it crystal clear throughout the letter that whether we're talking about the heavens or the earth or under the earth, the entire universe, seen and unseen, it has been conquered at Easter, and it is now under the jurisdiction of Jesus. That's his exact point in Philippians chapter 2, which was our call to worship, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. On earth, And under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His resurrection, his ascension is felt in every corner of the cosmos. You can search the world over, whether it be rulers or principalities or powers or people or angels or demons or the underworld every corner that you will find and you will not find a knee that has not or will not be bent in worship to Jesus this is all part of his plan verse 10 that he might fill all things we're talking about what Jesus has done And where his power is felt. Now keep that grand plan in mind from verses 7 through 10. That he wants to fill all things. We know that Jesus gives those gifts. And we know that they happen after his ascension. Which happened after he came and descended and then ascended. But what are those gifts? What specifically does Paul have in mind? He's listed Uh, many things that Jesus has given us in his gospel. What does he have in mind right now? What are the gifts that he wants to talk about? Well, that comes to us in verse 11. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints. These are his gifts. Luke and Kim, there you are. In God's providence, you appear in our passage today as your last sermon here, that when Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth and he ascended up to the right hand of the Father, he had this plan in mind to unite all things to himself. He will send you and he will accomplish that plan. And for the rest of us, we're not going to define each of these five now, but I want to simply show us why Paul is choosing these five to highlight at this point. 
Because Paul could have said that Jesus, when he ascended, he gave the gift to the church of the church officers, right? We believe that there are two ordained offices in the church. We get this from the New Testament, the office of elder and deacon. He could have said, Jesus has given the church the gifts of her officers. We've got elders and we've got deacons, but he doesn't say that. He could have said that Jesus gives spiritual gifts to every member of his church. We know that's true from the New Testament. We know that the Spirit comes and he gives every single one of us in this room spiritual gifts. There are five lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. If you put all five of those lists together, you'd come up with 20 plus spiritual gifts. I don't think any one of those lists is exhaustive. I think the point in each of those places is to say that in the Spirit, Jesus piles on the spiritual gifts that he gives to the church. But Paul doesn't say that either. He doesn't say anything about officers. He doesn't say anything about this exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Instead, he chooses these five gifts so that he can highlight that at this moment... Jesus gives the church men and women who teach the Bible. That's the emphasis here. All five of these are teaching and speaking gifts. And the point he is making is that these are gifts to the church. They are so valuable to us. They are referred to in verse 7 as the grace and the gift from Christ To each one of us. This is Christ's gift to you. That you will have teachers, mentors, disciplers in your life. Who will teach you the Bible. So that you can believe it. And memorize it. And meditate on it. And live it all the rest of your days. Now hang on a minute. Just just hang on a minute. We just got from Easter. Jesus conquers all enemies seen and unseen. And one of the best gifts that he can think to give the church in our hour of need in light of Easter are Bible teachers? Like that's what he came up with? I mean, you're talking about like my parents or my Juice and Jesus teacher or my life group leader Or my elders and pastor, flesh and blood, fumbling, errant teachers? That's your plan, Jesus? That's what you want to do after the resurrection? That's what you want to give the church so that we can do the great commission work you've assigned to us? That's your plan? And Jesus would answer very simply, if he spoke like a millennial, yeah, totally. That is totally my plan. That has always been my plan. I've always done that. Old Testament and New Testament, I have always chosen to send errant, human, fumbling men and women to speak the divine, to teach supernatural, spiritual things. I have always used that for the people of God. And he might say, if you really do this, You'd be surprised what happens, chapter 2, verse 20, if you build the people of God on the word of God 
and make members ready to hear and be engaged with the teaching that comes through the word and through teachers, you'd be amazed at what can happen. Even the most mediocre teacher can work with that, right? Even the most flawed teacher can take a humble, eager, spirit-filled group of people and lead them one step forward, two steps back to the bright glory of looking like Jesus. Anybody can do that with God's help. It was a few years ago that I went to lunch with a group of pastors. They were all from the same church. There was a senior pastor and a group of assistant pastors. And we're sitting and eating lunch together And uh, one of the assistants says to the senior pastor, man, you are a really solid preacher. And I just kind of watched that as senior pastor do what every pastor does when he hears that. You just kind of sat a little taller and felt good at that statement. And I thought the assistant pastor should have stopped then and there. That was a great thing to say. But then he opened his mouth, which he had a tendency of doing. And he said, yeah, you're solid, man. You hit doubles Every Sunday, you don't hit triples, you don't hit home runs, but you don't hit singles either. You hit a solid double every single week. I've never seen anything like it. (laughs) And you just watch the pastor just completely deflate, and there's this huge awkwardness of trying to recover that backhanded compliment. Whatever you do, do not tell the teacher or mentor or preacher in your life that they are consistently mediocre. That's about the worst thing you could say to somebody. Tell them that they offended you. Tell them that you disagree. Do not say that they are mediocre. Do not pull them aside and say, man, your teaching is like the golden corral. It's not going to wow you, but I'm going to get full. You know, I'm going to leave getting what I paid for. I mean, that's depressing. I actually think the Apostle Paul was a lousy preacher. He gets picked on, especially by the Corinthians and the super apostles. You are so bold in your letters, Paul. They're so so bold and courageous. But then when you show up, you're so timid in person. You're just underwhelming. You're a very small man with a very small voice. And you don't carry the weight that your letters do. I think Paul was a lousy preacher preacher so it's funny that he's writing this if you are a preacher if you are a teacher if you are a mentor or a friend or a discipler if you've thrown yourself into the life group ministry or the children's ministry at this church take heart teacher God is going to use you because it's not about you it's about this eternal plan of bearing the fruit of his resurrection and ascension by gifting the church with teachers and changing lives. And whether we hit a home run or a double, he promises to bring Jesus' resurrection to bear on the entire universe. Take heart in your labors. Take heart in your calling. Take heart in what Jesus has asked of you to do in the midst of our body. Now that's the first point. That's big picture stuff that Christ gifts teachers. The next three movements, they get very practical. That after Christ gifts teachers, teachers, they turn around and equip saints 
so that saints, every one of us, can turn around and do the work of ministry so that Christ's body is built. And we're going to go to that point, point number four, which comes to us right out of verse 12. We see this entire flow. It's Christ gifting teachers. Teachers, they turn around and their job is to train saints, equip saints, outfit saints, give saints everything they need for work in life and godliness so that it's the saints, it's every lay person in this room. They can turn around and do the work of ministry so that we will see this glorious goal that will come back to again and again in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that we will see the body of Christ built in our midst. Member, saint, layperson, this is your mission. This is your job to build up Christ's body. That means we go out and we find new people and we bring them into our fellowship. And we see them by God's grace come to faith in Him and be born again and baptized. And then they with us, we grow up together discipling one another so that we begin to look like the body of Christ. That is what we are. That is what we are becoming. All of that is God's plan in the church. Now when Paul says this, I believe he has in mind The local church. I believe he has in mind a specific church. The body of Christ that we belong to and participate in. I think he means that because he's going to go on in chapters 4 through 6 to give us very specific, very interpersonal instructions That only makes sense, not if we're thinking about the church universal at large, around the world, and all the people I interact with online, only makes sense if we think all of a sudden, very small, very local, very personal, with the people who are sitting in this room together. He has in mind the local church. Let's be careful not to take these words and interpret them generally. That's the worst thing you can do. Like, I read Ephesians 4, and now I believe in the church in general. I believe in the idea of the sanctification of the church together. I believe in the principle of church membership. I believe that this is God's scheme on a global scale, and somehow, some way, I want to be a part of that. I believe in this in general, Do not think that unless that generality translates into local, present, personal church activity. Universal church convictions don't mean anything without local church participation. Universal church Ideas, convictions, principles, books you've read, blogs you've interacted with, they don't mean anything without personal, local church participation. Don't tell me you love the church if you don't love this church and the people God has put in it. Otherwise, that is meaningless. 
if you love the idea of the church and not the reality of a church, then your affections for the church are not worth the price of the piece of paper that your membership vows are printed on. It does not mean anything. It has no bearing in the body as Christ understands it when he gives us these marching orders to get involved and active in the local church body that we belong to. To have that idea, to talk about the church universal and not the church local, that's like a father saying he believes in the family. Like he boasts that he believes in the capital F family. He loves the idea of the family. He believes that as the family goes, so goes the nation. He likes to tune into programming that focuses on the family. He's just too busy to spend time with his actual, local, flesh and blood gathering at the dinner table family. That man's convictions are meaningless. They're cheap. Anybody can say that. Anybody can talk about the big C church. Anybody can discuss their convictions. Anybody can share their learning about what happens in the ethereal world of the universal church. But those convictions are cheap if they do not translate into you here, now, in this body, participating with these very people who are seated around you. But take heart. This is Jesus' gift. The whole reason he ascended to give gifts is to train us so that all of us will be equipped, all of us will have what we need to turn around and apply what Jesus has done on behalf of the church. If this is true, if this is what Jesus is really doing, if these are the four movements that we see in Ephesians 4, then I want to close by asking you believer, you Christian, you lay person and saint, do you build up this local church body? Columbia Presbyterian Church. Do you love this church body and the people in it? Do you serve this body? Have you joined in membership to this body? Do you give sacrificially of your time and your money towards this body? Do you participate in the discipleship process of this body? Are you using your spiritual gifts in this body Do you lay down and die for this church body? Praise God. That is Jesus' gift to you and the church. And it is Jesus' joy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive us of a robust theologically acute idea of the universal church if it does not translate into flesh and blood 
personal participation in the local church body. Would you bring this gift to bear? Teach us your word so that we can stand on it and be built together brick by brick to do this important work of ministry so that we will show forth the glorious body of Christ to a watching and a needy world. Do this in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear now this promise, this benediction from Philippians chapter 3. It does not fall on us as individuals. It falls on us as a local church body. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Amen.